think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk, and today we have a very special guest, Anne Durall. She's a registered nurse and a CNN. You work for CNN as well? <laughs> oh, I wish. No, what is CNN? Certified nephrology nurse. Oh, you're specialized in nephrology. Correct. So if somebody is choking on a piece of meat in a restaurant, you couldn't help them at all? All I can do is spell Heimlich, but I don't know how to do it. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, you're, uh, you're also a clinical support specialist for hemometrics, right? And, and what is hemometrics? Hemometrics is a small company based out of Salt Lake City, and they make the blood volume monitor. Some people call it non-invasive vascular monitoring. Others call it relative plasma volume monitoring, and the actual monitor's name is the crit line. Oh, yes, the crit line. Correct. Right. And, you know, when somebody's on dialysis, they always take your weight before and after. So, you know, tell me about the difference between the dry weight and wet weight. Understanding dry weight is such a difficult topic because I don't think a lot of people understand what that means. When we get on the scale, we get a weight. And, you know, we're all going to the bathroom and we're pooping and peeing. However, a dialysis patient has some issues, meaning the kidneys are not working properly. They're not making the right amount of pee or they're not even making pee at all. Many times dialysis patients have problems with constipation. So when the dialysis patient gets on the scale, oops, what is the weight? There's a bunch of water in there because the kidneys didn't make pee correctly and there might even be some stool in the bowel because the patient's constipated. So we have the term dry weight. We also call it EDW, which stands for estimated dry weight. And that's kind of a key word, estimated. We don't really know what your dry weight is. We kind of examine you. Do you have some swelling in your feet? Do you have some swelling in your butt? Are your eyelids puffy? Are your pants too tight? Are you a little short of breath? Okay, then you must be too heavy. Then when you get on dialysis, we try and take the water off of you, and then we weigh you again, and if everything went well, we say, oh, wow, this is your dry weight. So we subtract what you weighed on the scale from what you weighed when you got done, and we try and estimate what you should weigh if your kidneys were working normally. However, it's difficult because, you know, if you've got some constipated stool in your bowel and we're weighing that, then you may be too heavy. If we take off too much water and you cramp, then you may be too light. Or what if you drink 7-Up or you stopped at McDonald's on the way to dialysis and picked up a huge big 16-ounce soda? So we can't take the soda out of your tummy. So it's, it's pretty difficult to get your dry weight. So we call it estimated dry weight. And that's really, I think, a better term when we get further down the road would be your ideal dry weight. Well, I think a lot of people get it confused because 
when they're losing, you know, you start dialysis at, you know, 60 kilos and you end at 55. Well, that's a lot. Five kilo drop or let's say 57. People think they're losing weight and it's just all fluid. Like I've had people think that it's like, you know, they're at Weight Watchers at dialysis. And if you're gaining fluid and you're not at a correct dry weight, the number one cause of fortunately death with people with dialysis is cardiovascular disease. So can you explain, I mean, how much fluid is in the body? How much can we hold? We'll just talk about a normal 70 kilogram man. You know, that's the medical model. I don't know how many men are really 70 kilograms, but let's just talk about a 70 kilogram man. The 70 kilogram man has five quarts of liquid in his blood vessel. If the kidneys aren't working and the patient is drinking, then where does the water go? Well, some goes into the blood vessel, so the blood vessels can actually hold seven quarts of water instead of the normal five that they should be holding. Then some of the other water goes into the cells, and when we talk about cells, we mean muscle cells, bone cells, skin cells, liver cells, kidney cells, heart cells. And then there's water around the cells, and the water that you see around the cells is when you press on your legs and you could have a little pitting edema or swelling that you can actually feel that's spongy. So you can hold a lot of water in your body. Your legs are a great reservoir for extra water um, behind your back, your eyelids. So how much water can you hold? You can hold an extra 5 to 10 kilograms of water in your body. You'll just look like the Pillsbury Doughboy. That's okay, except for the water in your blood vessel. Imagine the heart is the pump that has to pump all this water around. And the heart is happy pumping 5 quarts of water. But what if you have to pump 7 quarts of water? Well, the heart has to work harder. So it has to pump harder. It's a muscle. It gets bigger. Then you have what's called left ventricular hypertrophy. Your, the left chamber of your heart gets bigger because it's working so hard. Just like if you go to the gym and start lifting weights, your muscles are going to get bigger because you're working so hard. That works as a compensatory mechanism for a while. But if we don't get that extra water off out of your blood vessels, then eventually your heart's kind of going to stretch your heart's kind of like a rubber band, and you know that a rubber band loses elasticity. So when your heart stretches, then it gets a little floppy, and it doesn't pump properly. And when your heart can't pump properly, then you're getting into heart failure problems. And that's why we really want to prevent fluid overload, because we want to prevent the heart failure and we want to prevent the heart failure because we don't want our patients to die sooner than they should be dying. Well, and the thing is, is that I know when I get extra fluid on my body, immediately my blood pressure starts to go up. So can you explain, is that because the heart's just working harder? Well, think of the blood vessels as pipes. And these pipes are kind of like a closed system. So if you put five quarts of water into the pipe, then it's got a certain amount of pressure. Now you put seven quarts of water into a pipe. The pipe can stretch a little bit, you know, kind of like a garden hose. It's a little bit rubbery, but it can't stretch forever like a balloon. So this extra water puts pressure on the sides of the blood vessels. And if you remember in high school physics, 
pressure is force per unit area. So seven quarts of water, too much water in the blood vessels, is putting more force on the sides of the blood vessels than five quarts of water. So your blood pressure will go up. And then um, if your heart beats stronger and better, that can also make your blood pressure go up. But if your heart beats floppy, then your blood pressure can go down. So that's why many dialysis patients who have fluid overload will start with high blood pressures. They get put on a bunch of medicines. And then over time, we don't get them to the correct dry weight. So then the heart starts failing and then the blood pressure starts going down. And then those patients who started dialysis three years ago or five years ago with really high blood pressure start coming to dialysis with really low blood pressure. That means the heart's failing. And then when they come to dialysis with a really low blood pressure, they think they don't have any fluid on them. <laughs> and that's actually incorrect. I know. I know. I That's one of the things that would bother me because it's like, you know, you get on a lot of blood pressure medicine and then isn't it harder to take fluid off when you're on blood pressure medicine? Yes, it is. Because what a lot of the blood pressure medicines do is they dilate your blood vessels. So, of course, your blood vessels are dilated to accommodate this extra water to keep your blood pressure, quote, normal, unquote. So you come to dialysis and then you start removing the water from the blood vessels and then the blood vessels don't start constricting around the new level of water. And so the blood pressure drops and the patient feels bad and you feel dizzy. And so usually we recommend that you hold your blood pressure medicines the evening before or the morning of dialysis so that you don't get into those kinds of problems so that we can take the water off of you without you having a problem. Well, I know that one of the symptoms of taking too much fluid off is crashing and cramping. And can you explain what's really going on when you start to cramp and crash and your blood pressure's dropping when you're on dialysis? In the old days, we used to have sodium in the dialysate fluid of about 126 equivalent and so the water would move very easily and slowly from the blood through the dialyzer and would get rid of the water. Then we got to this ultrafiltration where we could actually mechanically move the water quicker so dialysis times got shortened and we increased the sodium in the dialysate. So now our sodium in the dialysate is say 140 to 148. It's supposed to prevent cramping but the problem is, is that it raises your sodium in your blood and then that sodium in your blood makes you thirsty and you drink more. So we use the sodium in the dialysate to prevent the cramping, to supposedly prevent the low blood pressure. However, there's not good evidence that it actually works as well as we've said it works. Um, it's a lot of anecdotal information and it's empirical. We think it works and so we've had these high, compared to the patient's serum sodium, we've had these high dialysate sodiums to prevent the crashing. But unfortunately, to prevent the crashing, we make you thirsty, we send you home with a higher sodium and that's not a good thing and that actually contributes to your high blood pressure. What a vicious cycle. 
I know, it's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> you just go round and around. <laughs> so in order to combat, you know, getting too much dry weight, too much uh, real weight and fluids and everything, you have this product called the Crit Line. Tell us how that works. Well, the Crit Line is a blood volume monitor, and it tells us um, by what percentage we are decreasing the volume in the blood vessels. Now, we know that there's some safe numbers. You know, if you're still making urine, we don't want to take off too much fluid because we still want to leave your kidneys something to do. So we pretty much find that those patients tolerate a reduction in blood volume of 3 to 8%. Then patients who are not making any urine, they tolerate a reduction in blood volume of 8 to 15%. If you have a very bad heart, um, your heart's pretty stiff, then you're not going to tolerate more than 3 to 8%. So we kind of divide our patients up into a few groups, and we know more or less what blood volume change you can tolerate. So our goal is to decrease your blood volume to, amount, to an amount that you can tolerate. There is evidence that using the crit line, we can tell what your dry weight is. And what we do is we put you in minimum, so we don't remove any additional fluid. We just put the dialysis machine in minimum. And if your blood volume stays the same, then it means you're dry. Your blood volume stays the same because there's no more, no more water that's willing to move from outside the blood vessels into the blood vessels and replenish the blood vessel volume. If water keeps moving into the blood vessels, then, of course, your blood volume will go up because water is going in, and then we go, oh, you're not dry. So we can say if you have refill, then you're not dry, but if you don't have refill, then you are dry. So we look at the graph, and if the graph goes up, that's refill, you're not dry, and if the graph stays the same, then you don't have refill and you're dry. So the blood volume monitor is really a good way, very specific, tell if you have any more fluid that's willing to shift into the blood vessels or not. Well, I've seen this product for many years. Is I actually had the opportunity to work for this company. It was one of my first jobs in the 90s, and I would not want to be on hemodialysis without it. And, but you most know, dialysis units don't use it, is that I correct? know, and I think that needs to change. I mean, it's it's really unfortunate, but um, and do uh, they people not need to become it? more edgy. Why don't people use the crit line? It's because Anne? it's probably not paid for by insurance, is that correct? Well, well, that's pretty much it. I will say that it is standard of care in veterinary medicine. It's standard of care for pediatric patients below 35 kilograms. So I think... Um, you hit the nail on the head. It's a reimbursement issue. It's a money issue. And this is America. You know, we're a capitalistic society and money talks. And, and how expensive is it to use these crit lines? Well, a crit line costs, you know, depending on how big you are and your pricing agreement with the company, but you're looking at around $3,000 for one blood volume monitor, which if you think that that's about what an IV pump costs, in the hospital, compared to other equipment, it's not that much more expensive. And then the blood chambers that you need to use, that's where the sensor clip gets attached, which actually measures the hematocrit and the hemoglobin and the blood volume change and the oxygen saturation. Those blood chambers 
cost about $3. So, you know, $3,000 for the monitor and $3 for the blood chamber. However, we um, published a study, um, a group of patients in Grass Valley, they had 15 hospitalizations in the year before using the crit line for fluid overload specifically, and then in the 18 months following using the crit line, they only had one hospitalization for fluid overload. So if you want to look at the cost, you know, how much does it cost to be in the hospital with fluid overload? Let's say $2,000 a day. Well, one day in the hospital will pay for your crit line. So that's why it's hard to say, wow, we can't afford it. I guess the question is, why can we not afford it? Or how can the patient afford to not have a crit line? You know, because we want to keep people out of the hospital. I think there's a tremendous social burden when somebody has to be hospitalized. I mean, Laurie, you know. Well, and, and the problem is, is that it's two different pots of money. There's money that pays for the dialysis care and money that pays for the hospitalization. And so if you save somebody from going in the hospital, the dialysis unit doesn't make the money. And so they can't figure out how to pay for it in, from keeping somebody out of the hospital. So, you know, it's really an unfortunate, but it's, there's a lot of, it's the same thing with transplant. You know, they pay for your transplant um, and the medications for three years, but, you know, they'll pay for you to go back on dialysis, but not continue your medication. So there's these things that just don't make sense. But I think, well, what can patients do that are listening to this show? And they're like, well, what is the crit line? I've never heard of it. What do they do? What, would they go to their nurse administrator, to their physician and ask them about it because really, you know, I know a lot of products in this country. Um, home dialysis is really becoming more uh, progressive because patients are asking it and getting involved. But on home dialysis, they don't use a quit line, correct? Well, you can. So you can on some. So it's a uh, it's. But patients are asking for home dialysis, and 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 the community is responding. Right. Well, this is what I say: the wheel that squeaks the loudest gets the oil. Why does every dialysis chair have its own TV set? Do we need TVs in dialysis? Absolutely. They don't get reimbursed, but everybody gets to watch TV on dialysis if they so choose. So how how does it come about that we all have TVs in dialysis? Every single patient has their own TV set and their own wireless controller to watch their channels with headphones. That's because the patient said, I'm not going to go to your unit unless I can watch TV on dialysis. So, you know, patients have a say. You, we need to take responsibility for our health care. We need to be our own advocates. We need to get informed. We need to read the literature because sometimes I think industry is just too busy, too short-staffed to really focus on some of the details that concern us as patients. So I'm saying the wheel that squeaks the loudest gets the oil. Hey, do you have quick lines with your dialysis unit? Okay, I'd like to be a patient there. Oh, you don't. Oh, well, let me call my friend down the road and ask her where the crit lines are being used. You know, I think that's all you can do right now. But, hey, this is America, you know. That's exactly what I did. I was going to a dialysis unit, and they didn't have crit line, and I was really having a problem with crashing. So I went, you know, a couple miles away to that unit who did have a crit line. And um, didn't see a difference, so I went back to the other unit. I... <laughs> did the, you didn't know what the machine did, huh? No. <laughs> did you? Did you get? But the... they did have TVs. I blame it all on people's court because you know people become addicted to that and they got to see it. 
as a nurse, I'm addicted to the crit line. Yeah. I, if I ever was not working for Hemometrics, I literally, as a professional, would refuse to take care of a patient unless I had a monitor for the entire treatment. Well, and I, I think I am too, because I still talk about it after all these years. And it is, it's amazing product. I saw it for four years. I saw over, I went to probably 500 different facilities in four years. I mean, you guys worked me really hard in four years, but I always learned something new about what was going on with the patient and the healthcare professionals did when they took the time to look at it, pay attention to it, and they got some key information about the patient that made them understand how to treat them better. And it just takes that extra time. And I can't even express how many cases, I mean, that I saw. I saw this one man one time, he was he was cramping and crashing. And every time he cramped and crashed, they uh, would come over and run sailing into him. So, you know, when we were demonstrating this product, we would always rock it, walk into the worst, you know, the, the, they always gave us the worst patient. And anyways, we, we put him on the crit line and right in the middle of the treatment, his, he started crashing and cramping and just uh, felt awful. But as its oxygen saturation dropped to 85% during this time during treatment. And what happened was, is that uh, why he was becoming so sick is because his oxygen was dropping, but they were coming in and running a bunch of saline in him. So they were giving him the wrong treatment. And once they put him on nasal O2, he was able to feel better, not get so nauseous and tolerate fluid removal. You know, I just remember because he was really thinking about quitting dialysis because it was so difficult for him. And I, you know, I went to a lot of pediatric units. And so as you know, I'm your number one fan. And if I ever need to be on hemodialysis again, I certainly would not want to be on dialysis without the grit line. With that, um, I think we belong to the same fan club and we married somebody from the same town. Awesome. And, uh, and, and I've been to South Africa and you're from South Africa. So we're almost sisters. We're connected. <laughs> we're totally connected. Well, thank you for explaining this topic. And do you have a website that you can send patients to if they want to learn more about this product? Yes, why don't they go to www.hemometrics.com and that's H-E-M-A-M-E-T-R-I-C-S and there's actually a tab for patients. I mean, patients are welcome to go into the for doctors or nurses, but just bounce around on the website, see what's there. And if you are a patient and you have any comments or compliments or critiques, we're also willing to hear those because whatever we can do to improve the product, I mean, you know, obviously industry is driven by the patient's needs. And so we like feedback from anyone who's using the quick line, whether they're a patient or a clinician. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Anne, for giving us all this valuable knowledge. And we'll see you in Torrance. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference. 